Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. wonder how many of us would consider how much we listen on a daily basis. Do you find yourself listening a lot? Whether it is to the news or to a podcast or to music, that we are taking in a lot of information all the time. And, uh, I would say from my own experience, much of it isn't edifying information that we're listening to. But even more than listening to that which is without us, outside of us, we are also listening to ourselves. So I wonder how often we think about the voices in our own head that we are listening to. What is it saying to us? What does it show about those things that we value or those things which are important to us? But Christians are not those who just listen to ourselves. Christians are those who speak to ourselves, that in fact preach to ourselves, but not out loud, (laughs) often, but perhaps. We find examples of this in the Psalms. You can think of the psalmist writing, why are you downcast, O my soul? So he's been listening to his soul. He's downcast. And he's listening, asking a question. But then he responds. He speaks to himself. He preaches to himself. He says, hope in God. So for the psalmist, it wasn't the thoughts that were entering his mind that were ultimate. It is what he did with those thoughts. It is what he valued in those thoughts. And we are called um, to preach to ourselves as well. That even in the next few verses that we read this morning from Philippians, after we are to rejoice, we see there Paul's commandment, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So when you're sitting there talking to yourself, which I imagine we do, are we passive listeners or are we proactive talkers to ourselves? And what do we talk about? And I would say that even more than just talking to ourselves, Christians are those who also talk to God. We pray to God. And I wonder if we would examine those thoughts, those prayers, rather, to God 
what would they reveal about us? What would they reveal about what we think is important, those things which we think that we need, those things which we want to see? Our time together this morning is a continuation of our time in the last few weeks in Acts 2, 42. As we see the Lord building his church, we see these foundational pillars, and we come to this week an examination of prayer. So with these thoughts in mind, let's stand together, let's read God's word. When I get done reading it, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and we will say thanks be to God because we are people who are thankful that we are not left without God's word, but that we have God's word, that we can read God's word. Hear the word of the Lord. Acts 2.42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would send your word forth this morning as the rain from the heavens to the ground. And as the water would, the rain would water the ground, causing there to be growth, may your word accomplish its perfect purposes among us this morning. It's in Jesus' name and for his glory I pray. Amen. Please be seated. If you are a note taker, or not a note taker, but you just want to know where we're going, I'm going to give you it all right now, and you can just know that there is a plan <laughs> for this morning, and you can see if I'm, if I'm getting there. Um, if you're not, it wouldn't make a difference if I gave this to you or not. You would just follow along and just trust where we're going. So... We're going to take a look throughout the book of Acts, not just this verse, but the entirety of the book of Acts, to see what prayer looked like to the early church. Now, all what we say this morning is not all that could be said about prayer, certainly not, um, but I think it's important as we look at the church itself, at these foundational beliefs, what was important to them, um, we would A, be taught by what was important to them, and B, uh, perhaps be reminded of things we have learned but have forgotten with regard to prayer. So here are um, some principles, and there are seven of these, of prayer that we see in the book of Acts. Seven principles of prayer that we see in the book of Acts. Um, first, we are to be devoted in our prayers. Then we are to be together in our prayers. We're to be planned in our prayers. We're to be biblical in our prayers. Sacrificial in our prayers. 
and needy in our prayers. So devoted, together, planned, biblical, sacrificial, needy. And I think if you count, I just gave you six, right? <laughs> I am a math teacher, but the last one, maybe you'll get it as, as, you, as you get to the end there. There is a seventh one, but I want to play those cards close to the vest, although maybe many of you would be able to guess what it is. So I'm going to get to the end there. So, Well, let's look at here at the beginning. The first one, devoted. We are to be devoted in our prayers, and that one is the most obvious one because it's exactly what we have in our verse there, verse 42. We remind ourselves that the church devoted themselves to prayers. So we see this picture, remind ourselves that those who received the Apostle Peter's words, the teachings of Jesus, in fact, I would say they received Jesus himself, were repentant, they were baptized, and then they devoted themselves to prayer from that point onward. And I'm reminded how easy it is as a young Christian, full of the newness of life in Christ, to give ourselves to teaching and to fellowship and to breaking of bread together and to prayer. But when the days of our new Christian life turn into weeks and turn into months, they turn into years, we find that we need a disciplined life. We need a devoted life to carry us through these years which become very, very long, through dry and difficult seasons. We find that our own hearts begin to grow cold our zeal begins to wane, and Egypt, the world, continues to entice us back with how much better life was before. Perhaps you know this in your own life, and how we need to remind ourselves that devotion requires intense effort, it requires strength to continue in spite of difficulties and duration and distractions. Devotion implies hard work and implies accountability. And we must remain steadfast. We must press on to the upper call of Christ. We must endure. And woe to us if we do not endure, because we read that it is those who endure to the end who will be saved. It is not those who grow cold and whose love wanes. The Christian life is a life of devotions. And by that, I don't mean primarily the time you set aside in the morning to read the Bible and to pray as good and as necessary as that is. But we fall short of true devotion if that is the limit of our devotions to the Lord. For the whole of our lives is to be a life of devotion to the Lord. So may we set aside that time in the morning, yes, May we nourish ourselves on God's word. May we be on our knees in prayer. But may that just be the kindling of the fire of our devotion to the Lord throughout the rest of the day until we lay our heads on our pillows that night. Of the seven places where the word that's translated devotion is used in the Bible, five of them deal specifically with prayer. So of the seven places, five of them deal with prayer. So let's flip in my Bible, one page back to Acts 1.14, and we see another example of this, devotion and prayer. This takes place after Jesus' ascension to heaven. The 11 remaining disciples have returned to Jerusalem for the mountain called Olivet, and they gather together in the upper room, 
And then we read in verse 14, all these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the woman and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. And here we see in the early church the same sentiment expressed by Paul in Romans 12, 12, where we read, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. That's that word devotion, be constant in prayer. And again in Colossians 4, 2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful, at, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So God's people are to be a praying people. And you can examine this yourself as you read through the Bible and you make note of how often we see God's people praying. One author notes that prayer runs through the book of Acts like an ever-present yet inconspicuous thread. It's not hard to find, yet at the same time easy to overlook. And I would argue the same is true for the entirety of the Bible, that we might overlook prayer in the lives of the people of God because it is so ubiquitous. And even on a Sunday morning as we gather together, I imagine if you've just come and visited with us, it's like, wow, they pray a lot. <laughs> Almost at every turn in our order of worship, we're praying. But if you've been here for some time, you almost maybe would take it for granted that we would be praying so often, whether it's planned prayer or just extemporaneous prayer or short prayers or long prayers, but we pray. We as a church want to continue steadfastly in prayer. Is prayer something that we view as the domain of special, unique people, the so-called prayer warriors, or for certain special occasions? Or do we heed God's call to be constant in prayer, that we would, with intense effort, and despite whatever obstacles there might be not to pray, we continue in prayer? So we are to be devoted in our prayers, secondly, we are to be together in our prayers. We are to be together in our prayers. We often think of our prayers as these solitary endeavors. Uh, most of our prayers are when we are alone and by ourselves and it's in our heads. But what we read in Acts 1.14, we see that devotion to prayer is done in one accord and that they were together as they prayed. So they were together physically, yes, in the same room, but just as importantly, they were together spiritually. They were with one accord, it says, devoting themselves to prayer. They were unified. They were of one mind. They had the same desires. They had the same goals. And you would think, well, how is that possible? You get two people in a room together, they probably disagree about everything. How is it that you would have this group of 11 plus more all in one accord? Is it not because they are unified by the Spirit of God? We often miss this notion when we recite Ephesians 4.3 that we are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And we often pass over that word of. We are to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. So it's not a unity that we create. It's a unity that the Spirit has created in us. These disciples were new creations in Christ. They were born again not of perishable seed but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So having been born of that same word, the gospel, now they have the same mind, they have the same hearts, they have new desires, 
And it's because of that that they were eager to maintain that unity which the Spirit had created among them. And while that accord, that unity can happen while we are apart, how much more so when we are together? And how much more so because we are together and we see one another and we know one another? In fact, that's what we see here is that there is a connection between being devoted to the fellowship, that's this sharing of life together, time and space together, and prayer. They're not mutually exclusive things, distinct and apart from each other. But because the disciples spent their lives together, because the church spent their lives together, they were able to pray one another. They wanted to pray for one another, and they could pray effectively for one another because they knew each other. And so there are times when we must necessarily be apart. We can appeal to one another, much as Paul did in Romans 15.30. He says there that by our Lord Jesus Christ, And by the love of the Spirit, we strive together with one another in our prayers to God on one another's behalf. So we are to be devoted to prayers, we are to be together in our prayers, and we are to be planned in our prayers. So if we go back to Acts 2.42, again, these details that we might miss, certainly I miss all the times I've read this, But now we see it here as we examine it, as we spend some time just sitting on this verse here. We see that the church was devoted to the prayers. And as we've seen previously, that definite article, the, along with the plural of the prayers, implies that what is specifically in view in this verse is that these were formal prayers together. In fact, if you look just a few verses down, six verses down to Acts 3.1, we see that this is very likely what was in mind. Acts 3.1, we read, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. So we read that Peter and John went to a, a specific place, the temple, at a specific time designated for prayer, the ninth hour, which if you have a note in your Bible, say that was about 3 p.m., Traditionally, within the Jewish culture, there were three hours of prayer, a morning, a midday, and an evening uh, time of prayer. And that's what we see, if you want a reference to this, Daniel 6.10, that it was Daniel's practice to prostrate himself three times each day toward Jerusalem and to pray and to give thanks to God. So while we find ample evidence of individuals praying spontaneous prayers, in response to certain situations, being constant in prayer does not preclude planning for prayer. That it's not an either-or, but a both-end. That we will plan for prayer and we will pray spontaneously as the situation arises. And more than just planning to pray, there was a specific location in which they went to pray, which was the temple. And I imagine some of you right now are thinking, temple and prayer and the verse is coming to mind, perhaps, which is that Jesus said, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. And he said this when he was in the temple, when he observed uh, those using the temple for other purposes, for trade, for making money, for making it, as Jesus put it, a den of robbers. And so we might view 
or ask ourselves, do we view our church building similarly, similarly, in the same way? As we've meditated upon and considered these last few weeks about why we come together as a church, I wonder what's come to mind as you think about that. I mean, is it the case that, well, it's always what we've done, right? So then this habit of ours has become like a bad thing because we just do it without thinking about it. Or it's a place where there's people we want to see there, which is, again, not altogether bad, but we can begin to view the church as like a social group for hanging out, for seeing these people. Perhaps we think of the church as a place where we're going to sing songs or, or read the Bible. Maybe it's a place where we go to feel better about ourselves and need that Holy Spirit pick-me-up to get you through the week. But in the midst of that, perhaps we've forgotten that the Lord's temple, the church, which is from 1 Corinthians 3.16, the church is the Lord's temple, is to be a place of prayer. And how would that consideration, as we gather together, being a house of prayer, as it were, would that change how we approach gathering together, what we hope to get out of a Sunday morning? Would it even change how we prepare to come, what we're doing on a Saturday night, or what we're doing in the morning as we're getting dressed? Would it even change our posture while we are here, that we are to be a house of prayer? So we are to be devoted, we are to be together, we are to be planned in our prayers. Fourth, we are to be biblical in our prayers. The question might be, during these planned times of prayer, and at these planned places of prayer, well, what were the prayers that they were praying while they were together? Right? If it's planned, then there probably are some things that they were doing all the time when they were together. There's one commentator who writes that the earliest believers view the old forms of prayers, perhaps from the Psalms or perhaps from older uh, church tradition or uh, tradition within the nation of Israel. But the earliest believers viewed those old forms with new content. And in their enthusiasm, they fashioned new vehicles for their praise. So these early Christians have what we would call the Old Testament portion of our Bibles, but they would see all that was written as being fulfilled in Christ. So these are the old forms that are now being filled with new content, as it were. And we can see, even as we began this series, the importance of God's word as the foundation from which we build our church. How often Jesus would cite the law and the prophets in his teaching, in his ministry, the very fact that he was the fulfillment of what we saw there in the Old Testament, how it formed the very basis of what he did. We can see this pattern even in Peter's sermon in Acts 2, how he used Scripture during Pentecost, used the Old Testament to proclaim the truth about Christ, what was happening in the present experience. And we see that even carries on to us now, that we need the Bible in our prayer. So if you flip a few chapters ahead in Acts 6, Acts 6, beginning in verse 1. We read there, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, 
It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And we can't miss this, beginning of verse 5. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. So that was good to the church as it gathered together, that the apostles would devote themselves to prayer and ministry of the word. Why is that? Why would the church be glad about this? Why would this be the apostles' focus? Well, is it not because it is through the word that we even know what to pray? People will often ask, like, well, how will I know if God will answer this prayer? Or how do I know if I'm praying according to God's will? Well, one surefire way to know the answer to that is to pray prayers we find in the Bible, in God's word. One commentator says, let's take the guesswork out of it. We should pray what he calls no-brainer prayers. These are prayers that God has already guaranteed to answer. So if you're looking for some examples, what kind of prayers do we know that God will always answer? Prayers for forgiveness. 1 John 1, 9. God will answer those prayers. God will answer prayers to know God better. Ephesians 1, 15 through 22. Prayers for wisdom, to know how to live for God. James 1, 5 and 6. God answer prayers for strength to obey, to love, and uh, to live for God. Again, Ephesians 1, 15 through 22, or Ephesians 3, 14 through 15. And there are many, many other prayers that we could see in God's word. But part of being planned with our prayers is to plan our prayers with model prayers in the Bible, with scripture in mind. Not just whatever thought comes into our mind, because I don't want to be praying every thought that comes into my mind. And it's for that very reason that it's not a coincidence that we read God's word before our corporate time of prayer together on Sunday mornings. We want our minds saturated in the truth of God's word before we pray, that we want to be thinking God's thoughts after him. So do we use God's word when we pray? Do we try to clear our minds or do we try to fill our minds? Is, would be the question. And if it's true about us as the people of God, it's because it's that way among the shepherds of the people of God. Those are to be examples of the flock. Isn't that what we want from pastor elders who shepherd the flock of God that is among them? Don't you want those who are devoted to the study of God's word? Not so that they can dazzle with spectacular insights or impress with vast knowledge, but the one who is devoted to the word so they can use the word to nourish us, to minister to Christ's sheep through its preaching, through its teaching, and yes, also to its prayer. I don't want Pastor Tyler primarily praying my prayer request to him that he asked me for. It's like, what do you want me to pray for you, Eric? And I tell him. More than that, I want him praying God's word over me and my family. Then I know he is praying according to God's will, and those are the kinds of prayers that God will hear and that he will answer. 
so we be devoted, we are to be together, we are to be planned, we are to be biblical in our prayers. And then this next one here, we are to be sacrificial. Number five, sacrificial in our prayers. And what I mean by sacrificial in the specific context is not that we is that we view our prayers as memorial sacrifices. So it's not that in this memorial sacrifice that we would remember God, but that God would remember us. And we see an example of that in Acts 10. So if you flip a few more pages ahead in your Bible, we can see this together, that our prayers are to be sacrificial. They're to be sacrifices. Acts 10 Here we read the account of the Roman centurion Cornelius, beginning in verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms alms generously to the poor, and prayed continually to God. So we can stop right there and say, oh, that's kind of what we've heard so far, isn't it? Here's a man who is devout, and we can see in that word devout, this word devotion, that he prayed uh, continually to God, right? That is that devotion played out, that constancy. Verse 3, about the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. So here we see someone who is devoted to prayer, who is planned in his prayer, who is constant in his prayer. But our focus is on what the angel spoke to Cornelius. He says, your prayers and your alms, those are the gifts to the poor, they have ascended as a memorial before God. So as one commentary puts it, this Memorial idea is a language of sacrifice that we might find in the Old Testament in, for example, Leviticus 2, where there is a grain offering and it's burned as a memorial portion on the altar, and the offering, that smoke as it rose up, was a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So we are reminded as we think about our prayers being sacrificial that they are to be a pleasing aroma before the Lord. They ascend to his throne even. But there's even more to this idea of memorial than just this ascension of our prayers before him, but that it's that God will remember his people and remember his people with favor. That's the idea behind the sacrifice, to have God look upon you favorably. That's why you're sacrificing as they did in the Old Testament. And if you... Look further down, we see this is exactly what was in mind here. Verse 31 of Acts 10. Here we read, Your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. And this idea of God remembering is the idea of God about to act on behalf of his people. So we learned way, way back in Exodus 2, 24, we see there, we read there, God heard the groaning of his people in slavery, and we read God remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. And then from that point on, God is acting to save his people. So when we want God to remember us, it's because we are asking God to not just know that we exist, which he does, but to then act on our behalf. 
So closely tied to this nature of sacrificial prayer is that we are to be needy in our prayers. This is number six. We are to be needy in our prayers. So then we would ask ourselves, why do we pray? Or perhaps, why don't we pray? I think we pray, as bizarre as that looks to the world, as, as you sit there with closed eyes and you're just like asking for something from without, Christians are those who recognize that we have needs and that the help for our needs doesn't come from within. It comes from without. That we find ourselves are depending on God, who we cannot see to grant us what we need. So we cry out for help. We cry out for rescue. And we cry out like those who are true widows described in 1 Timothy 5.5. 5. And I bring that up because it's interesting to see what we read there in 1 Timothy 5, 5 about those who are true widows. Widows, we would say, well, those are those without husbands. But Paul would say in 1 Timothy 5, 5 that it's not merely not having a husband that makes someone a true widow, but is that they are left all alone. And having been left all alone, they have set their hope on God and continue in prayer day and night. And so I wonder if we would see ourselves in that same way, that we are needy, that we have no hope in the world, but our only hope is that our prayers will rise to God, that he will look, he will hear our prayers and look upon us with favor, and that he will then act. And I think this is maybe why we don't pray as consistently as we should, is because we don't see our need. If we think about it, we examine ourselves, it's like, well, if life is going well, like, I don't have anything going on today, it's a Saturday morning, you know, I got my job, everything is going well. Are we on our knees as much? Are we praying as much? I've been doing pretty well in my devotions. Life is good. I think if we were to examine ourselves, we would say we're not really praying very much in those times, although I would say we ought to be praying in those times. And it's not so much that life is good, although it can be in circumstances, but it's that we've forgotten how much we need Christ in that very moment. Because in that deception, we're thinking we don't need God anymore. I can make it on my own. Thanks, God. I don't need you today. I got this handle. I'm not going to be praying to you today. Everything's good in the church. Everything's good in my life. We're, we're good. Just Maybe come see me tomorrow. We'll, we'll check in there, see how things are going then. May it not be so among us. For we are to be people who see that without Christ's sustaining grace in our lives, we would be undone. More than that, we are to be a praying people because we have few earthly resources. Even the richest among us would have few earthly resources, but we have infinite heavenly resources, and we have access to those resources before the throne of God, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So may the Lord remind us that we are a needy people, that we need him, that our prayers, in fact, rise up to him before his throne. So I think I'm doing okay. I think I got through our first six. Am I on track here? 
Maybe some of you guys have already written in number seven here. We are to be devoted in our prayers. We are to be together in our prayers. We are to be planning our prayers. We are to be biblical in our prayers, sacrificial and needy. This is all things that the church in Acts is doing. But now we come to the last one, without which those prior six don't make a difference. We are to be kingdom-minded in our prayers. Kingdom-minded. There's probably a better word for it, but I think that gets the point across. Kingdom-minded in our prayers. We're to be thinking about God's kingdom, in other words. And we see that back in what Jason read for us earlier this morning in Acts 4. We see there, we have those verses before us there in Acts 4. That the primary end of our prayers is not ourselves, it's not our personal well-being as an ultimate end, but the ultimate purpose of our prayers is the building of God's kingdom through the proclamation of the gospel. So our prayers are, yes, an expression of dependence on God, this neediness that we've talked about, but it's a dependence that we cannot do on our own That which we've been called to do as the church, to go and make disciples of all nations. I'll say that again. Yes, prayer is an expression of dependence on God, but it's primarily an expression of dependence that we cannot do on our own. That is, to go forth and make disciples of all nations. We cannot do that as a church unless God does that in us. God does that through us. That we would pray that God would work out his plans. In the Bible, a phrase that's used for prayer is to call upon the name of the Lord. Back in the first prayer recorded, back in Acts or Genesis 4, that's what we see there, call upon the name of the Lord. And when you think about calling upon the name of the Lord, how is that different than just praying? Well, when you call upon the name of the Lord, you're remembering the name of the Lord is his character. And his character is merciful, it's gracious, It's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. It's a saving character. So we pray in accord with who God is. And so we pray that God would himself work out his plans in this world. And that's what we see in Acts 4. The believers were praying for, uh, together, praying for the sovereign God, the one they remind themselves, he made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything that is in it. How good it is for us to be reminded of what is true about God as a foundation for our prayers. And this is because Peter and John were being persecuted for speaking boldly the name of Christ. They were put in prison and then released. The church prays this, and we see in verse 29, the church prayed that God, the sovereign God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in it, would look upon the threats being made against the church. And notice what they didn't pray for. They didn't pray for safety. They prayed for boldness. And not boldness to make a countercultural political statement, but a boldness to proclaim God's word. If we're going to be bold for something, may it be for God's word that we're proclaiming the gospel. If you want a prayer that God will answer, pray that prayer. Because God did answer that prayer, and he does answer that prayer today. Look at verse 31. 
And when they had prayed this prayer for boldness, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So they had examples within their church of those speaking the word of God with boldness. There's threats against them. They prayed to God, help us to continue doing that, and then they did it. And we see this is even the note on which the whole book of Acts ends. There we see Paul under house arrest in Rome. And he is proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. He's in prison under house arrest. And we can say there without any irony that he was preaching about the kingdom of God and the Lord Jesus with boldness and without hindrance. So are our prayers ones for ease and for comfort, for safety, for protection? Or are prayers those concerning the spread of the gospel, that God would build his kingdom? In fact, that's what Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Is that what we want? Do we want to see God's kingdom come? Do we want to see his will be done on earth as it is in heaven? But his will is not done apart from his church and their prayers, but his will is done through the church and their prayers. And we can see that at critical junctures of the ministry of Jesus and the life of the church, they were steeped in prayers for this very purpose. It was for the proclamation of the gospel and to further God's kingdom. We can look at, as we read through the New Testament, when they were going to anoint elders or make a decision, they would be praying about it. We see that back in Acts 1.14. The context there was choosing of the 12th disciple, the one to replace Judas. They saw this new Israel symbolism among the 12 disciples, and they had 11. So they prayed they would have this 12th disciple. The Lord would show them that. And then they prayed uh, and commissioned uh, that 12th disciple to serve. We saw that uh, in Acts 6, as the church was growing, as there were these needs for these uh, table servants, these forerunners to deacons, that the people prayed for God's will to be done in that, for wisdom, for discernment in those things. And we see here that these things are very consistent with what Jesus himself did in his life. That there is an account in Luke 6, 6 12, where he went to a mountain, he prayed all night to God, and the next morning, he chose the 12 whom he named apostles. These would be the 12 upon which the church was built. And we have to go even to another place to see where Christ was praying as he was building his church at the cross. So let's look at one final place this morning, Luke, Luke uh, 22. Luke 22, so we can see this together. Here we read that Jesus was praying on the night of his betrayal. Luke 22, beginning in verse 39. And he came and went out, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he had come to the place, he said to them, Pray that you, will, you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. 
Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him, and he arose and he went to the cross, to this crucial moment in the history of the church on which the gospel is built, that he went and Christ died as in our place as the perfect Passover lamb. He secured there our redemption, forgiveness, and reconciliation. He propitiated God's wrath against us. He made God favorable to us. And now that we would be reconciled to God, we ourselves as the church become ministers of that same reconciliation to others. That we are new creations in Christ. That what we read in 2 Corinthians 5 is true about us. God was reconciling the world to himself, now counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us, the church, the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. So we implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So we end where we began. What do we think about as we're talking to ourselves? What is foremost in our thoughts? And in their minds. What do we dwell on that reveals the ultimate desires of our heart? Is it that God's kingdom would come, that his will would be done? Do we want to follow in the steps of our Lord? If that's the case, we're going to deny ourselves, we're going to pick up our cross, we're going to follow him. Spurgeon said that the condition of a church may be very accurately gauged by its prayer meetings. For from it we may judge the amount of divine working among a people. If God be near a church, it must pray. And if he be not there, one of the first tokens of his absence will be slothfulness in prayer. I wonder if we would examine ourselves in that way, if we regard our health as a church. Would it not be perhaps what we do on a Sunday morning gathered together, but on a Sunday night we were gathered together for prayer, when we are, in fact, considering the building of God's kingdom when we gather together? It's a sacrifice. It's not easy. It's a sacrifice of time. It's a sacrifice of energy. It's giving up these things we would otherwise want to be doing, perhaps, but what is important to us? What is that we desire? Is it not that we would follow our Lord and Savior into the Garden of Gethsemane? That we would be not those who are sleeping instead of praying? That we would follow along with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and we would cry out, not our will be done, but your will be done. Build your kingdom, O Lord. Let's pray. Lord, you have given your church the most important work in this world, a work that cannot be done by any other organization, by any other group of people. It is the sole domain of your church to be ministers of reconciliation. Forgive us, Lord, where we have been slothful in our devotion to prayer, 
because we do not consider the death and life ministry that we have together as a church. Lord, that we would not pray together or give ourselves to prayer out of reluctance or obligation, but out of zeal and delight because we want to see your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And so we pray that would happen even now. Amen.